Beloved, let's turn then in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be reading from verse 36, just under verse 43. And uh, I know I say this every time I preach, but the realization that I'll be changing book soon is overwhelming to me. It seems just like yesterday that I started preaching from Luke chapter 1 and now we're at the end. And uh, I'm not quite sure if I'm ready to leave. I'm having a little bit of a trauma. There's so much more I could have said. But hey, let's look together. I'll read it and then we'll look at it together and we'll, we'll draw some lessons from it. So simply from 36. Now, as they, the disciples, said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit, a ghost. And he said to them, why are you so troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your heart? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me. And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Do you have any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Amen. Amen. I was saying to, to the, the guys yesterday at the Bible study, one of the most difficult things about preaching a narrative portion of scripture is that you must preach the story you can't just draw from the story lessons and then jump to other places that's very easy to do it's kind of cheating but the lesson is in the story what is the story telling us what is the holy spirit communicating to us through the story what's it showing us it's one of the difficulties, uh, yet one of the joys when you keep it real in that sense. And so here we are, right at this point, and we're getting near the end of the book. And all of us who read, we all know that the most important information is at the end of a book. It's the conclusion. The final chapters or the final summary is always contained in those last chapters. I have children who have had the bad habit of always reading the end of the book before they read the beginning because they want to see how it ends before they, want to, before they know how it began or the journey to get to the ending. They're always rushing to get to the end. Here in this portion, we remember that it's on the Sunday... Jesus had been resurrected in the morning. The, young, the women had gone to the graveyard early in the morning, just as the day was dawning, before anyone would have a chance to move the body. And they discovered that he was not there. Angels appeared to them and they rush back and tell the disciples of their discovery. And then we are told that several of the disciples rushed to the graveyard to see and Jesus appears to Peter. 
They come back. And as that was happening, as that was going on, or just, sorry, after that happened, we are told then that two of the disciples are heading back home from Jerusalem, seven miles, a journey of about an hour and a half to two hours, two and a half if you walk like me, very slowly. And they're walking, and as they're walking towards their hometown, Jesus appears and is beginning to walk with them. And they don't recognize him. And he asks them a question, at least a discussion. And Jesus then rebukes them for their slowness of heart, their sadness. And he begins a Bible study with them. And he begins to communicate to them from the Old Testament, their Bible. From the books of Moses, from the five books of Moses. From the prophets. From the Psalms. And he begins to communicate to them. And he begins to instruct them of how the Messiah had to die. How Jesus was a sacrifice. It wasn't enough that he just came and lived a perfect life. But he had to give his life as a sacrifice. And we're told that as they get to their destination. And Jesus is about to continue on. That the disciples make him stop. And they force him to come in and have Supper with them. And they're still so excited about the Bible study and about the revelations that that, that they've been taking place in their mind that they forget to say grace or we untar, we, we, we understand it. And so Jesus takes the bread and breaks it and blesses it. A very unusual thing for a guest to do at a supper. It was the host, the one who was providing the food. That was his job in Jewish tradition. And they would always do it. It was a thing that religious Jews did. Blessed be thou, O Lord, as they broke the bread. It wasn't the Lord's Supper. It was just a, a normal religious practice that they did. They took the bread and they broke it. And they always began their thanksgiving with, Blessed are you, O Lord. Shoop. And Jesus did this, and he, and he broke it, and he blessed it. And the scriptures tell us that the, the two disciples' eyes were opened, and they understood, this is Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus is taken, disappeared, gone. Don't know how it happened. It's one of those supernatural miracles. He was gone. And then these two men look at each other. We, we, again, we untire that they were men. We don't know that they were men. We know that one of them was a man. We don't know if the other was a man or a woman. But we, we, under, we think it was a man. Perhaps. And uh, they say, Did our hearts not burn as we heard these things? And they received and they experienced a revival in their spirit. All of that sadness, all of that depression, all of that hopelessness had disappeared. Gone in an instant while Jesus opened up the scriptures. And we see that this unusual experience then led to them wanting to tell their friends, their fellow disciples about Jesus. And that's very key. When a person experiences revival, 
a, a, a rebirth of enthusiasm and passion. It is perfectly natural that the first thing they want to do is tell everyone that Jesus is alive. That it's real. It's not imaginary. It's not hopeless. There is a desire to share. And it says there in the scriptures that immediately they get up in the very same hour, more or less, immediately. They get up, supper is forgotten, the long journey to there, to their home village is forgotten. As I said last time, I'm sure it didn't take an hour and a half to two hours for them to get back. I'm sure that they were running through the darkness. I'm sure that they were hightailing it back to the disciples. And they get back to the disciples. And they begin to communicate the things. They hear what has happened. And it tells us in another gospel that, that as these two men were sharing the story, the disciples didn't believe them. There was unbelief in their hearts still. They were critical. And you can understand that, couldn't you? It's a little bit of a far-fetched story. Jesus appeared to us and he was telling us all these things, but we didn't recognize him. We didn't know it was him until he broke the bread. And then you're like, hmm, sounds a little bit of a charismatic story to me. A little bit of a delusional story to me. You know, hmm. And these right-minded Disciples who were still suffering the shock and the trauma of the crucifixion. It was only three days ago. Not even three days. This is on the third day. They are still deep in their trauma. And you can understand. I, I can understand the hardness of their hearts. I can understand the difficulty that they had to believe that Jesus was alive. They saw him Whipped, beaten, abused. Paul was, or not Paul, Peter was there during the trials at the chief priest's house. He saw the beard being plucked from his face. He felt the animosity and anger and hatred of the, the, the chief priests and all of their people against Jesus. They saw the Romans beating him with their sticks. And whipping him with the scourge. Seeing the chunks of flesh being ripped from Jesus' back, arms and legs. As they whipped him with that glass studded whip. They smelt the blood. They saw the gore. They heard the noises and the grunts. The gurgles and the splashes. They experienced it. It wasn't. Just a story for them. It was shocking and real and visual and gritty, horrific. They saw Jesus being forced to carry his part of the cross through the streets and heard the laughs and the mockeries of the people as Jesus was led to Golgotha. They saw him collapse and Someone else have to take the cross and carry it to the place. They heard the <laughs> hammering of the hammer and nails into Christ's hands and feet. For them, it was a reality. And so we can never question why it was hard for them to accept Jesus was dead. They saw 
him on the cross. They experienced the darkness. They saw the spear plunged into his side and the blood and the water flowed. They were there at a distance when Christ was taken from the cross and wrapped in linen, put on a cart probably, and taken to the tomb, bundled into the tomb and rolled over as the sun was setting. Everything speedily done, everything done last moment, everything done in order that it could be done before the Sabbath came. They were there and they experienced it and it was real. And so we can never marvel at their unbelief. We can never be surprised at the fact that it took a while for them to really grasp that Jesus was alive. Because they had received the trauma of seeing their master and their friend brutally murdered. So again, we're told that the disciples didn't believe. They still retained doubts at the story told by these two disciples. And yet Luke tells us here in verse 36 that as they were saying these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. He appears to them as they're having this reconnecting, testimonial meeting. That's a better way of saying it. As they're sharing their stories, as they're communicating and telling all and witnessing to what they experienced and what they saw with the passion and enthusiasm and the new life and the hope. And the disciples are like, yeah, I just can't believe that. I just don't know. Jesus appears to them. I mean, like, they're having a secret meeting in a dark room because it's in the evening time, at night time. And Jesus appears and he says to them, peace to you. I think he would have been better saying boo, but that's me. I would have done that. I, <laughs> Childish as I am, I would have done that. Scared the life out of them all. But he says, peace to you and it's it's this nice way of saying relax don't be afraid chill out boys peace to you the very first thing that Jesus does is he is concerned about their hearts first of all he doesn't want to give them all a heart attack but he's more concerned about the bickering and the anger and the frustration these there are people among them now who are saying we saw the Lord He's alive and then there are others who haven't experienced it and they're angry because they don't understand. They're confused and they're still suffering and there's this animosity growing. Some who are positive, some who are negative and they're beginning to bicker and anger. They're going back and forth and you can relate to that, can't you? You can understand that. There are people there who are getting angry You keep saying this, but I just don't believe you. And Jesus appears to them in the midst of this, I would imagine, getting heated discussion. The very first thing he says is peace. Peace to you. And all of a sudden, that which was a bubbling pot. You ever made pasta in a pot? And it gets, the water gets too hot and it bubbles and it bubbles and it overflows. Or have you ever boiled milk? And it get or made hot chocolate, and it gets too hot, and it overflows the pot, and 
the situation was getting to a boiling point. It was getting to a point where it was going to overflow. And Jesus appears and immediately he pours cold milk into the boiling milk. Cold water into the boiling water. He brings a settlement immediately. He removes all doubt whether Jesus has been raised from the dead. But yet even still, his physical, visible return to them doesn't bring them peace. But rather we're told it terrifies them. Terrifies them and frightens them. Those words are very strong words. We're not talking that, oh Jesus, you gave me a shock there. Oh, But literally, they are terrified, horrified, petrified. There is this wanting to scream and run, but yet at the same time so frightened that they cannot move. That's the strength of the words that are being used here. It wasn't a kind of nice, kind, kind, gentle experience. The Bible is so honest. I like the way it doesn't try and make the disciples look like they were all cool guys, like action heroes. Well, Jesus appeared and I was like, hi, Jesus, that's really cool. But the scriptures tell us that things were honest and real and relatable. Jesus appears amongst them and they are terrified. Terrified. Why? Because they saw him be murdered. They experienced the smells, heard the sounds, the ripping of the whip. You can't just get over that. You can't ignore that. For them, the death of Jesus was real. But now the resurrection is just as real. And that's even more frightening than his, than his death. The fact that he's alive and that he's here terrifies them more than the fact that he had been murdered. The fact that they might be next. Because who is this man? How can he be alive? How can he be here with us? And it tells us there that they were frightened because they thought that they, had, they were seeing a ghost, a spirit, an undead force. The idea they thought that, that it was a ghost and that in somehow, in some way, that was going to cause them harm. That they were going to have their life force sucked out or something. That Jesus was coming to do them harm. That they supposed that he was a phantom. The idea here is a phantom. Something without physical reality. Something that doesn't have a body or flesh. Uh, the appearance of reality but lacking the, the essence, the the realness of reality. We, we understand that, don't we? When we think of people who are dead coming back to life, we think of ghosts, don't we? Our culture tells us that people who are dead, when they come back to life, they're ghosts. 
How often ever when you were a child did you see cartoons where the person dies and a ghost comes out of them, you know? A phantom, a vapor, something that doesn't have actual reality. And often Christians today, our view of resurrected life or life after death is more formed by worldly thinking, by cartoons or modern media, films, the culture in which we come from, from Greek philosophy, than it is from the Bible itself. Far too often, we, when we think of life after death, we think of white clouds and people dressed in white with wings and a harp. I'm so, sorry to say, but that's, the common thinking. We think of ourselves as that we will one day be like ghosts. It's not the truth. It is not the teaching of the Bible. These men were terrified because they thought they were seeing a ghost because they could not understand the reality of what life after death looks like in Christ's kingdom. And Jesus answers them and he dispels their doubts. Why are you so troubled? The idea is multi-minded. Why are you all over the place? Disturbed. Not at peace. Think of when you take a, a large rock and you throw it in a pond and there's that big plop. And then there's lots of ripples. Or when you see lots of waves on the sea. A boat goes by and you see the water is troubled. It's not at peace. So was their heart. So was their mind. They were not at peace. They couldn't get to grips. They couldn't understand. How is this? What's going on? I can imagine that in some part of them they were just dying to get out of the room, you know, like looking for the nearest exit, wanting to run away. You know, human beings, we have two responses to danger, don't we? The fight or flight tendency. I don't know if you've ever seen those funny videos on YouTube or Facebook or whatever else where, where people will boom. And then, oh, they either run away or standing. You, you see people dressed as ghosts or zombies in dark rooms and they, they come out and, and then you see the Americans, normally Americans, because only Americans are crazy enough to do things like this. And you see the people run away from some veiled character. But I, I personally like the ones that when somebody jumps out and then bang, you know, they're, they're, that fight flight, that's my... My personal favorite is the man in the ghillie suit, the sniper suit, who pretends to be a tree. And he's in a pot. And you know, he, he kind of goes, hello. And people, ah! He's learned, that man has learned only to do it to ladies, mostly because men will punch him. And every now and again, some woman will punch him. But for the most part, he only does it to ladies because some man will punch him or kick him or something like this here. We human beings, oops, excuse me, we human beings have that fight or flight tendency. It's built into our hard drive. And here in this experience, it was so otherworldly, so different, so unnatural that I can imagine the disciples' hearts 
and natural instinct is to run away. It is to somehow in some way either strike against it or, or to get as much distance as possible. They, they cannot in any way, shape or form understand. But not only that, it, he's addressing the difficulties. The disciples, Peter, Mary, these two disciples who were in, on the road to Emmaus. And they're coming back and there's this trouble in the group. Some have experienced the living and risen Christ. Others haven't. And there's this being pulled apart by the unbelief. And it's threatening to divide this little church. Their lack of unity is pulling it apart. And the trouble that's happening is Threatening to kill it. This is the reason why Christ appears to you. Because they were so troubled. So. Not at rest. It was threatening the unity. Their ability to go on together. Their ability to be the church that Christ had created them to be. And so Christ asks them the question. Why are you so troubled? And sometimes asking the right question can end an argument. Why are you so angry? I didn't realize I was angry. Why are you shouting at me? I didn't realize I was shouting at you. I'm speaking loudly. Why are you getting so emotional? Explain to me. There is power in asking the right question. Because it forces people to... Come to the right answer. And Jesus asks his disciples, why are you so troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? Not again just because he had appeared. He's appearing to them to answer their doubts. To quell their fears. To stop the trouble. Why are you doubting when... Peter says that he met me earlier today. Why are you doubting when Mary told you that she met me in the garden? Why are you doubting that I should appear to the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Are they liars? Are they mad? Are they deceivers? Have you ever known them to be manipulative? Why would you doubt? Did I not say before I died that I would die? Did I not tell you the steps that would take? That I would be betrayed? That I would be handed over? That I would be crucified and die and be buried? And did I not tell you that on the third day that I would rise again from the dead? Why are you so doubtful? And all of a sudden, all of that anger and frustration and raw emotion turns to embarrassment. Turns to repentance. Changes. Acknowledges, remembers and acknowledges those things that have been said. Jesus did say those things. That's right, he did. And Peter, no, he, for all of Peter's faults, he's not a liar. For all of Mary's problems, she's a, a woman filled with integrity now. 
those two disciples, well, you know, I always imagine they were probably the most boring people of the bunch because they came back and they were all super excited and they're like, that's not like you guys. What's wrong with you? What's wrong? And they're like, ah, and they're, normally they're the kind of guys who stand in the back because we don't know anything about them. So I always imagine they're the kind of men who stand at the back who are part of the group but not really at the front of the group. The ones who kind of get lost in the background noise. The ones who you take for granted and never really kind of, you know, and they themselves don't see themselves as being main characters in any story. And yet for Jesus, they were important. They were one of the small select group that he showed himself to. And he wouldn't allow any of them to be lost or to escape. He is there to calm their fears, to end the trouble, and to blow away any doubts that they might have as to the reality of his resurrection. And then he says, behold my hands, behold my feet, see that it is me, it's really me. He proves without a shadow of a doubt. That it's really him. It's not an imposter. It's not somebody pretending to be Jesus. It's really Jesus. I remember a long time ago when I was a young man. Much younger than I am today. Without a beard and with hair. So that's how young I was. And I used to do drama. Open air um, evangelism. We, we would do drama and mimes and stuff. I know it's hard to believe that I would do drama and mimes. But I did. Out in the street every Saturday morning. And, um, and I remember once when we were there, we would do a drama. And, and we, it's called the Lamb of God. It, it, it demonstrated the crucifixion. And then after the thing, after that, that, that drama, we, we give a, a little talk. You know, a preaching, as it were. And one of the things that... I always remember from that, that little, it's a, it's a written down thing, so you, you, you speak it out. The only, the, the line, the only line that I remember from it was this, that the only things in heaven that are man-made are the holes in his hands and the holes in his feet. It's the only thing from this world that will ever make it to the next. The holes in his hands and the holes in his feet. As a testimony and a reminder of, of what it took to get us there. How much, how much do you love me, Jesus? That much. How much are you willing to sacrifice? This much. What did it take in order to set me free, to set you free? Look and behold. It may be an eternal remembrance to you. Jesus demonstrates that it's really him. And then he, he calms their superstitious fears. You know, the, their, their horror story fears that he's just a ghost and he's coming to suck out their souls. To eat their brain or something. He says, listen, I'm flesh and blood. Or at least flesh. And he says, handle me, touch me, poke me. See, flesh does, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as I have. Jesus has real form. 
He's not just some kind of phantasm. He's not just some sort of digital image. But he's real. Realer than you and I. He's in his eternal body. We should learn from this. Don't be manipulated and controlled and and directed by worldly thinking and by the thinking of the cultural norm that the resurrected body will be some kind of ghostly body or that when you die and are going before the Lord, when the Lord returns, that we'll somehow be specters, ghosts. It will not be so. You will have a real body. Jesus demonstrates that from the fact that he had a real body. Life after death isn't just ghosts. We're real. That should be good news. And it's a new body. It's not, a, it's not just a, the, the renovation of this old body. Please God, no. But we are given a new body. Indeed, when the Apostle Peter... No, but the Apostle Paul, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 15, he addresses the whole idea, the whole concept of the resurrection. And there in that chapter, he tells us in verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Oh, foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. What you sow, you do not sow that the body shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. There are one kind of flesh of man and one flesh for animals and another for fish and another for birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon. And another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness it is raised in power it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body and so it is written the first man adam became a living being the last adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not the first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heavenly we, and as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We are told that this body 
with all its limitations, with all its defects and errors and defunctional parts. We will not be limited. The Bible tells us that as this body dies, whether in death or in the resurrection, when Christ shall return, and we are told that we will be in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, be transformed and changed, from this will come something new. And we understand that, don't we? When we put an apple seed in the ground, we don't expect an apple seed to grow out of the ground. An apple tree grows. When we put a plant of any seed in the ground, we don't expect a seed to grow from the ground. The plant grows. The seed dies. It ceases to be. And from that, a new creation plant grows. We understand that there are differences. Paul tells us again, not all flesh is the same. We will have real bodies in the resurrection. It is a comfort to us to know that Jesus was real. It was a real resurrection. Why is that important? Well, we could read again from 1 Corinthians 15 if Christ is preached, now if Christ preached that has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The importance of the reality of the resurrection and the importance of the reality of the real Christ after the resurrection is fundamental to our faith. It's something that we just take for granted. We're so Christianized that we bounce over the fact that Jesus was really raised from the dead and he really had a real body. There were a lot of reals there, weren't there? It's really important. Because if he did not rise from the dead, if God did not accept his sacrifice, you and I are the most foolish of all people. We should be just going out there as again, as the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 15, just live our lives, eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. What's the point? But we know that there is life after death. How do we know this? One has come back and testified to that fact. Jesus has shown us that this life with its ending isn't the end. It's but the turning of a page. The beginning of a new chapter. The introduction has passed and now we enter into the fullness of the content. Beloved, when we read this about the rising of Christ, of him revealing himself to his disciples, it's just not a funny story. I mean, I, I, when I read this, I giggled and laughed because, you know, I, I see myself there. And I would probably be among one of those who were saying, and so what was he wearing? 
And what did he sound like? I would be very questioning and cynical probably and very, you know, I'm not sure I believe you. I need to see it myself. I need to touch him. I need to wrestle with Jesus to know that he's live. And then when he came and appeared, I'd be like, Woo! fear and doubt and all the rest. And Jesus has appeared. We have this testimony, this witness. And it is important to you and I. Because if Christ didn't rise, then our faith is futile. Therefore, we can have ironclad confidence in Jesus. We can know with all certainty. Unlike any other religion in the world, we know 100% in life after death. We know 100% that we have peace with God through Christ's sacrifice, that it has been accepted. Because God acknowledged it through raising Jesus from the dead. For you and I, the resurrection is probably the most important event other than the crucifixion. Relish the resurrection. Enjoy it. Rejoice in it. Hold fast to it. Let it be your comfort blanket. We should be called the resurrectors or something. I don't know. But our faith must be firmly Founded in the resurrection. All too often we, we make much of the cross. I grew up in Pentecostal circles. I was taught to preach the cross. Which I do with great joy and I love it. But very rarely did I ever hear a sermon or a message on the resurrection. On the importance of the confirmation of the risen Jesus. It was always a kind of thing, we got to the resurrection and then we went to Pentecost, you know, or the crucifixion and then Pentecost. Because that's where all the real business happens, you know, Pentecost. But the resurrection, beloved, the reality of Jesus, and we see the care of Jesus as he is comforting his disciples and calming them down and unifying them, drawing them together, and demonstrating the fullness. Beloved, don't be fooled by the world. Don't be deceived into thinking that life after death is all vapors and phantasm, ghosts, specters. I, uh, I love people who think of, uh, believe in Bigfoot and ghosts and stuff. I love those. Yeah, I, I, I have occasionally watched those ghost hunters where they go into the most darkest, scariest buildings with their little cameras and they're hunting for ghosts. I would always be there and go, hello, you know, frighten them. Because I don't believe in ghosts. I don't. I don't believe in ghosts at all. Because when you die, you go to be with the Lord or you go to judgment. Um, but these, these foolish people who believe in phantasms and, and, and specters from the past and they... Ghostbuster type things, you know, uh, foolishness, foolishness. And I would just mess with them completely. Like, I would just mess with them completely. Christian, don't allow ghostbusters, don't allow the fiction of modern 
supernatural teaching to form your thoughts of the afterlife. Let scripture, let Jesus in his revealed risen self be your teacher and be your guide. Hold on to the resurrection. Hold on to it and know that one day you will stand physically before the throne of God. Not necessarily, not in the body that you enjoy today, but in a different body. In a spiritual body, don't think again ghosts. Spiritual is just different. It's a different matter. It's a different reality, but it is physical as Jesus is physical. He is in his spiritual body. Remember we read that he, he after the resurrection, became a life-giving spirit. Hold on to the security of the resurrection and let it guard, guard you and guide you and let it motivate you. Let, it, let you understand that, that death isn't the end. That should bring many of us comfort and others of us terror. Those of us who do not know the Lord, don't enjoy the security of the knowledge of our sins are forgiven, that we have received peace with God, that we have been reconciled to him through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died for me and I am trusting in him. I have repented of my sin. He has taken my heart of stone, my old flesh heart, the heart that loved its sin and sought after darkness. He's taken it out of me. And he's given me a transplant of a new heart. A heart of flesh, the Bible says. A heart with his laws written upon it that I obey him and walk in his commandments and keep his statutes. All of us one day will stand before him. And all of us will face judgment in some aspect. When I am examined and all my life is laid bare before all of humanity. Every man, woman and child throughout of history will see my judgment. And all of my sins and all of my mistakes and all of my unrighteousness all of my deeds are laid before and when the verdict is passed pardoned forgiven despite all of my sin despite all of my failure pardoned purchased set free here is one who believed in me And I will pass from this life into eternity, into heaven. To be with him forever and enjoy the blessedness of his presence forever. But those who do not know him, those who have rejected him, those who have clung on to their stony hearts, those who have rejected the sacrifice of Jesus and have not believed, the Bible says that they will hear the verdict guilty. Guilty in all charges. All of humanity 
Every man, woman and child from all of existence will see the truth of that condemnation. All of your life will be laid bare. Every time that the Holy Spirit had reached out to you and called you, every time the revelation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified as your sin-bearing sacrifice was laid before your eyes and how you closed them, how you turned, how you said, no, I will not have this man to rule over me. Every single time when you trod upon the mercy of God and turned your back upon the Son. And the Bible says you will depart this life into eternity, but not a blessed eternity prepared for God's elect. But you will pass from this life into death into a lake of fire that was originally prepared for the devil and all his angels. And there you shall suffer day and night. The Bible says that the flame never quenches and the worm never stops to, to gnaw. You will experience an eternity of torment. Because you would rather desire to be in hell without Christ than in heaven with him. Beloved, the resurrection is real. Life after death is real. It's not a joke or a game or a fantasy. It's not a fairy story that we tell children. It's not something that we can just brush off and get on with the rest of our life. I don't mean to shock you, but one day you will die. Sooner or later you will die. The majority of us only have 70, 80 years in this life. And then we pass from this life into the next. Beloved, take eternity seriously. When we read this passage... Again, it's very easy for us to, to, to speed bump over it and get to the good parts. Get to the good parts. But here we are told the reality. We are instructed in the realty of the resurrection. Let us always be reminded of that. Let us rejoice. We who believe in Christ and know the security of sins forgiven and of eternity, the hope of eternity, let us rejoice. Let us cling to the risen Christ and give thanks for no matter what happens, we are safe in his arms. That which was done for him was purchased for you and for me. He purchased resurrected life. His life flows from him and comes to us. He gives you resurrected life as a down payment now, but one day you will receive the full payment. Beloved, let's rejoice in that. But if you do not know Christ, fear. Fear. For there is no escape at death. There is no breaking free from his control. Once you leave this life and enter the next, you must stand before him face to face. There will be no escape. There will be no denial. All of a sudden, he is there. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, please 
Lord, as we are finishing today, we pray that you would help us. We who are believers, Lord, and have faith in you, we ask that, Lord, you would encourage us in our faith. That, Lord, our belief systems will change. That we will guard ourselves from being influenced by the teachings of this world, by the fantasies and superstitions of this world of the easiness of life after death. Lord, forgive us if we have entertained thoughts of specterisms, Lord, if we're a ghost or, or we just haven't thought of it. We are grateful for the demonstration of the reality of Christ, of the, the body, the physical being of Jesus after the resurrection. We are grateful that he came and brought peace back to the disciples and unity. And Lord, that he demonstrated that he was more than just a ghost. Lord, we thank you that we know that we will once one day meet him face to face. But we, we are grateful that one day we will stand before you in judgment. And you will either embrace us as a friend, Lord, or reject us as an enemy. We are grateful, Lord, from the reality that we who know you will always know you as a friend. Father, for those who do not know you at this present moment, we are grateful that there is still time, that, Lord, that there is still hope. We pray, Holy Spirit, speak to their hearts as you did with us, so do with them. Call them. Do not allow them to flee from you. Lord, be merciful to them. Lord, open up their hearts and let them turn to you. Oh, God, that they would come to you. That they would believe that you're the only one who protect them. Lord, you're the only one who will keep them safe. The Lord, the devil, the world, and the flesh will have no hold upon them. Oh, Father, deliver them and protect them and keep them safe. Lord, change their hearts, we pray. Lord, we pray this for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.